Well, everyone is in an uproar this week because our president has withdrawn from an international climate deal. Uh, they are shocked, you know, that he would do such a horrible thing. And, uh, of course, some have taken to Twitter and, uh, you know, effigies of his uh, beheaded or decapitated head, I should say. And people are in all kinds of uh, worry that maybe we have forfeited our future and contaminated our children forever and cemented, uh, or the president has cemented his role as the worst leader ever. You know, I think sometimes we need some perspective, right? If we look back just a little bit, we might remember a time when the economy was absolutely sinking, unemployment was out of control, people everywhere were full of anxiety, taxes were weighing everyone down, everything down, the government spending was out of control, the government was funding all kinds of useless projects, public theaters, sports arenas, while people living in the countryside were dying of poverty. And all the while, the so-called leader of the world, of was living a secret life of shame, tried to secretly divorce his wife. Not only that, he was openly promoting homosexual lifestyles. In fact, he appeared to be a homosexual himself. And the people who worked with him were terrified that if they said anything critical about his life or his policies, they would probably be killed. The Senate hated him. Other leaders resented him. And he was more enamored it seems, with impressing the world of entertainers than with protecting the rights and welfare of the people. He said to have spent a lot of time actually working on his singing voice because he wanted to perform in public with, with the uh, public entertainers. He even learned how to play the ancient lyre, a small harp-like instrument, and he is said to have played it dressed up in the costume of an actor while the city of Rome burned. Of course, the leader was Nero, and the economy was Rome's. He was the leader of a failing economy, a nation and an empire full of unrest. But worse than that, it was a time and a government full of corruption, murder, taxation, all to build what the emperor considered to be the important ventures of the theater and the music venues where he could play his instrument, where he could entertain with the entertainers of his day. His spending programs were considered wasteful by most other leaders, and yet they couldn't say anything because they would have been beheaded. His taxation system was becoming increasingly oppressive, in fact, so much so that within the last couple of years of his reign, it led to outright rebellion in corners of the empire, most notably being Israel in 66 AD. Not only that, his personal life was full of scandals. He began his reign when he was only 17 years old, and for the next 14 years, it just seemed to get worse and worse as time went along. He had his mother killed because he didn't like her meddling in his life. He had his first wife divorced and banished. He had affairs with multiple slaves. He married his second wife before he was rumored to have killed her also. He had his stepbrother killed the day before he turned 
16, so that he couldn't be a proper heir to the throne. He killed many of his political opponents. In fact, he was said to be fascinated with different recipes of poison, his choice method of assassinating his enemies. And as he eventually lost interest in his wives, in 64 AD, he married a man named Pythagoras. In fact, uh, historians tell us that Nero actually dressed up as the bride and wore a veil to the ceremony. Three years later, spurning Pythagoras, he had a young boy castrated named Sporus and married him in the imperial palace. A pedophile. And at the same time, around his first homosexual marriage, Nero began holding public concerts, trying to impress the entertainers of his age, being discontent, thinking that he deserved grander accommodations than what Rome provided. He is believed to have set fire to the city of Rome in 64 AD so he could build what became known as the Domus Aurea, a personal country estate right in the middle of Rome, some Some 300 acres, people speculate. When it was finished, historian Suetonius quoted Nero saying, quote, now I can finally begin living like a human being, end quote. This was a self-absorbed, brutal, oppressive, and disrespectful man. Of course, there was a lot of controversy when the city burned and everything came down and people began to speculate that it was Nero who set the fire, so he conveniently blamed Christians. And he began to round them up in the city and cast them to wild dogs who would tear their flesh. And those who uh, remained after the entertainment of that was over, he impaled them on giant stakes and lit their bodies on fire to illuminate his night dinner parties. He was an unbelievably wicked man. So we probably need to remember how good we have it under Trump (laughs) or Obama or Bush or Clinton, how kind the Lord has been to us. We have to remember that for every Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill, there have been nations with a Stalin or a Hitler or a Pol Pot or an Idi Amin or a Nero along the way. But the one thing every one of them have in common is that every one of them, every single one, has been appointed by God. Every leader. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. That no matter how they came to power... They are there by God, and it's absolutely clear as well that we as Christians are commanded to have the same response to all of them, whether it's Trump or Obama, whether it's Stalin or Hitler, we are commanded to graciously submit to their leadership and to their government. That's the commandment we come to today in Romans chapter 13, a passage we're going to begin reading this morning that directly addresses the issue, we might say, of God and government. God and government. 
This is what he says in Romans 13. Let every person, literally in the text it says every soul, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. These are Paul's words, even as he is living at this time under the reign of Nero himself. And it wasn't that Nero was one bad apple. Paul had grown up under the oppressive regime of Caligula, of other Roman emperors before him who had oppressed the people, who had abused their position and their power, who had trampled the Roman constitution, who had dominated the Senate. And yet Paul's command is unambiguous regarding how he wants his readers to respond to men like Nero. Now, just to remind you, this uh, passage is really a part of a series of exhortations. It's not just a uh, just a, an isolated thing. It is a part of a whole complex of exhortations that Paul wants you and I to understand in how we respond to the gospel that has been given to us. He started back in chapter 12, verse 1, talking about the mercies of God and how we respond with a certain sacrifice of ourselves, a living sacrifice, so that we live lives that prove what is the will of God, what is holy and acceptable and perfect. And throughout that chapter, in chapter 12, he talked about how this this results in not having an inflated view of ourselves, an inflated view of our gifts, an inflated view of what we offer to the church, an inflated view of our own opinions. He talked about how it leads in verse 9 to a sincere or a genuine love for one another, how we're doing everything we can to live at peace with one another because God has made peace for us. He talked about how because of this gospel, we repay no one evil for evil, but we return good and so fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, down in chapter 13 verse 8, you'll notice that Paul comes back to this theme of love. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And he goes on to, to launch, if you will, again into another discussion of love. And, and sandwiched in between all of this discussion of, of how we respond to the gospel, in fact, uh, this discussion really about what sincere love looks like in the life of a Christian, uh, squeezed, if you will, into all of this is this mandate on how you respond to civil authorities. And there's a reason why Paul is so concerned about this. There's a reason why he went in this direction. Because in his mind, this is the clear implication 
of understanding everything he said about love. It's understanding the clear implication of what it means not to return evil for evil, but to return good. In fact, this is the primary reason he wants to share this with us. He's saying that this is one of the key ways that love must mark your life as a Christian. A love, we might say, not only for one another, but a love for society by a submission to its structures and its authorities. We understand that not only because of the surrounding context and everything that Paul has told us about returning evil with good. We understand that not only by, we might say, the implications indirectly of what Paul says in this passage, but more importantly, we understand that by parallel passages, by other places in the New Testament which bring up these same themes and carry forth the same mandates, but with more explicit statements of the purpose in why we do this. Paul, for example, talks about these things in Titus chapter 3. He talks about them in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But particularly, and I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, a passage using much of the same language and much of the same terminology, but Peter is much more explicit as to why we must do this, why this must be a priority for us. Peter couldn't be more clear about this kind of submission, why it's so important. It is, as we will see, it is because of our testimony. It's because of our witness, or we might even say because of our mission in this world and in this life. It's because we are called to be a people who are all about proclaiming the excellencies of God. Wherever we go, that is our purpose. That is why we exist. This is what Peter says. If you'll look for a moment, just in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as those sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So he said, look, this this is what you have to do. You have to be subject to the governing authorities. You have to live, and certainly you have your freedoms, but your freedoms are given to you not for the sake of freedoms. Your freedoms are given to you for the sake of being a servant to this gospel, to this calling to which you've been called. And so for the Lord's sake, he says, you are to be subject. In fact, if you back up in verse 11 and 12, you'll understand how Peter got into this discussion to begin with. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So all of this, he says, just like he says down in verse 15, all of this is for the purpose of silencing these people who are just looking for a reason to be critical of you. They're looking for a reason to slander you and to accuse you. And Paul is saying, silence them. How do you do that? You do that by being a good citizen. You do that by honoring the governing authorities. You do that by being in subjection, not only to the the emperor, but by every authority that emanates from him, by every authority that has been appointed within this government structure. And all of this is a part of what he said back in verse 9, that you're a chosen race, a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. He says, you want to know what your role is? You want to know why you have whatever freedom that you have? It's because you have a calling, a priesthood. You know what a priest is? A priest is someone who brings people to God. A priest is someone who is an intermediary between people and God, introducing them to God. And he says, that's your calling, that's your role. It's not the protection of your individual rights. It's not the guarantee of your individual freedoms. It's not the exercise of your citizenship for whatever purposes you might deem in your own selfish pursuits. It is for the purpose of winning the lost. This is very similar to the insight Paul gives in Titus chapter 3. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, and to be obedient. Remind them, meaning that I've already taught them these things. This was apparently something that Paul regularly taught, and Peter regularly taught. He mentions it here. He mentions it in, obviously, Romans. He mentions it in Timothy. Peter mentions it in in 1 Peter. It was something that was embedded even in the gospel account. This was obviously something that was a common teaching. We might even say an essential teaching doctrine in the early church, it wasn't something peripheral because the apostles had, we might say, a well-formed and widespread doctrine of submission to governing authorities. And Titus's job, among other things, was to remind the believers of what had already been taught to them. That they're to be submissive, they are to be obedient, and as he says in verse 1, to be ready for every good deed. To speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect court courtesy towards all. This is, what you, this is how they conduct themselves in the midst of society. They conduct themselves with gentleness, they conduct themselves with courtesy, they conduct themselves with good works and without quarreling. This is their job as Christians. He says you do this towards all men and, and you do it as he says later on down in, in verse 8 because these things are excellent and profitable for people. You do this, he says, because this is what is endearing to a world around you that needs to hear the gospel. You do this because people find it 
a blessing. So back over in Romans chapter 13, we can understand why Paul might frame this discussion of love, or excuse me, discussion of submission to governing authorities within the context of our responsibility for love. Because it is critical as our witness as a church. We're not called as Christians to be crusaders for our personal freedoms. We're not called as Christians to be crusaders for social morality in culture. We're not called to fight for family values through legislation or to get judges to uphold the the laws that we deem important. We're not called to riot. We're not called to protest. We're not called to wrangle with governing authorities. In fact, we're called to honor them and to speak no evil of them. And more importantly, we're called to proclaim the gospel, the excellencies of God to them. And the scripture is clear. Rebellious and dishonoring attitudes thwart and impede that mission. This is why it was so central in the teaching of the early church. Now, unfortunately, there have been many, many Christians who have, on one hand, either completely ignored this or, on the other hand, looked for convenient ways around the clear implications of these verses. In fact, Robert Haldane, the great Scottish Reformed theologian in 1839, wrote these words about Romans 13. He says, quote, No practical subject is more fully or more explicitly treated in the Word of God. The weakest Christian cannot be at a loss to discover the will of his Lord with respect to obedience to the civil government. Haldane's saying, look, it's just too plain what the Scripture says in this area. In fact, he goes on, he says, with one consent, the generality of men, even in this country, his country is Scotland, he says, even in this country, which is comparatively so much more enlightened by the Scriptures, proclaim that subjection to rulers is, even in things civil, limited and conditional, that in the case of the breach of the supposed compact between rulers and the ruled, rebellion is lawful and resistance is a duty. So he's just confronting his own people saying that, 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 that folks so easily try to get around this very clear and plain teaching of Scripture. In fact, he goes on, he says, it's lamentable to reflect that to justify resistance to civil powers, many of the people of God have resorted to the same false rules of interpretation as other perverters of the divine word have invented to banish the doctrines of grace from the Bible. All you're doing is picking and choosing the doctrines you like and the ones you want to support. But Haldane's clear. Any sound-minded interpretation leads to one conclusion. That God's command is unequivocal. Be subject to the governing authorities. Well, we want to avoid those mistakes. We want to understand this essential doctrine of submission to governing authorities. And to do that, we want to look closely at what Paul's saying here. 
Because he gives us, I believe in Romans 13, six consequences of rebellion against governing authorities. Very grave consequences if you understand them. Six consequences of rebellion against governing authorities. And the first one is this in verse 1. If you rebel against governing authorities, Paul tells us, you deny God's power in establishing governments. If you rebel against governing authorities, you are denying God's power in establishing governments. Because as Paul says, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's simple enough. There is no authority, there's no government, there is no ruler, no emperor, there is no president, no policeman who is in the position he's in or she's in without being established in that position by God. This is just simply the doctrine of God's sovereignty worked out in the practical affairs of government. And we who uh, so gladly laud the sovereignty of God in so many other things show such a weak faith in that sovereignty whenever we, full of anxiety, turn to the schemes of men in order to thwart the authorities of God in the governing structures above us. The implication here is that God is able to take care of those things Himself. And He does. The sovereignty of God establishing every political, every government structure that exists. In fact, Paul leaves no room for exceptions. There is no authority. No Pol Pot, no Idi Amin, no Hitler, no president, no governor. There is no authority except from God. Whether at a national level, whether at a local level, whether it's elected officials or appointed officials, as I said, whether it's presidents or policemen or teachers or whatever authority might be there in your life. And Paul's command is that we submit. He frames it really in the broader scope of authority. There's no authority except from God, but his focus obviously here is in governing, governing authorities. Paul would probably have said similar things, whether it was authority in government or authority in church or authority in the home. He would, he would want you to understand that those structures and that authority have been made, have been established by God. And for you to rebel against those things is to rebel against God. He's put them in place. Our job is to trust Him with what He's doing. You may not like the decisions that are made by the people who are there. You may not agree with all of their policies. But you're called to submit out of a recognition of the sovereign hand of God. And he's writing, as we said, remember, living under the reign of the emperor Nero. Writing to a church in the middle of Rome who was at the epicenter of all this oppression. A society who was structured to favor the privileged and to abuse the powerless. 
It's widely believed that there were in the city of Rome more than 50% of the population living in slavery at the time that Paul writes, many of them in the church. They would have been disadvantaged and disenfranchised from the outset. But even if they were free, they had to look on with horror at what was taking place around them, not just because of the economic turmoil and the massive taxation that free people had to live under, but even as those in positions of power around them promoted policies that undermined everything to do with biblical morality, that promoted wickedness, a culture of sexual perversion, as we said earlier, the emperor himself not only approving of homosexual behavior, but actually engaging in it openly, in the houses and the halls of government. People, on top of that, regularly exposing their infants. Meaning that they would take their newborn children and leave them out in the wilderness if they were considered unwanted for any reason. Where outside they would be exposed to the wild dogs and the birds who would pluck out their eyes and rip off their skin until they died. In fact, it was so pervasive in the culture that Christians began to go out into the wilderness and retrieve these babies and raise them. It became a point of contention about a hundred years after the church was established because people wanted to leave behind the guilt of their sin. This was acceptable behavior. It was legal behavior, sanctioned by governing authorities. There was terrorism all around. You had people, even in Israel, who were known as the Sakari, who walked around in crowds with daggers in their coats and would uh, approach people and come upon them and, 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 and uh, insert their dagger, killing people, stabbing people in the middle of crowds. Every corner of the empire seemed to be under the rule of some petty dictator with corruption and murder all around them being just common practice. And this was the world, the government under which Paul lived, and he himself was imprisoned several times by these kinds of leaders. He's writing to a church, by the way, which had a number of Jews in it, which in 19, excuse me, in the year 49, not 1949, in the year 49, they had been expelled from the city of Rome by Caligula who uh, was uh, blaming them for unrest. They They were victims of religious and racial discrimination. They had their property seized. They were no doubt roughed up along the way. Some of them probably died. They lived as refugees for... Uh, five or six years in other cities before they were finally allowed to return. And as Paul's writing this letter, some of them apparently were making their way back into the church at Rome and having to start over from scratch, having everything that they owned ripped away from them. Unjust and unfair in the highest sense of the word. 
And Paul writes all this, he, knowing all of this, knowing the ungodliness of the regimes of his day, knowing the history not only of Rome, but of all the despotic leaders throughout all of history, understanding that the Hebrews lived under the pharaohs in Egypt, understanding that Israel had, had once been ruled by Jeroboam, by Ahab and Jezebel, knowing that Daniel had been thrown in the lion's den by Darius, knowing that Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple in Jerusalem, knowing all of these things, knowing that Pontius Pilate used his authority to crucify Christ, knowing all of this, his command is to be subject to governing authorities because they are there, every one of them, with no exception, by God. In fact, Paul had probably heard the words of Jesus Christ passed down through the tradition of the church while he was being unjustly tried and eventually crucified. Pilate blusters to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says to him, you have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. That's the example of a man facing a corrupt regime. It's the example of a man facing a corrupt ruler and trusting the sovereignty of God. There was an awareness, no doubt, of the wicked rulers carrying out their wicked schemes and doing so all within the sovereignty of God. But Paul trusted He trusted God. He trusted that they would give an account for their actions. He trusted that they could do nothing if God did not grant them the power and the authority to do it. And he understood that if there was going to be any hope for his people or his nation or the empire at all, it was not going to be by confronting the morality of the legal structures. It was going to be by opening the doorways of the gospel. And so, he calls for you and I to recognize that from the start. Recognize there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. And the point is, if God didn't want them there, they wouldn't be there. And so, you and I are to submit it for no other reason, because we recognize that God has placed them there. And it doesn't matter how they got in place, it doesn't matter if they were if they were elected by democratic process or they were there by heredity of of, of royal uh, ascension, it doesn't matter if they're there by coup d'etat. They've been placed there by God. And we are to submit. Literally, the word is is to order yourself under them. It's It's a word, the word for submit is a word really for order, for aligning yourselves with this structure. Doesn't mean that we're not grieved. It doesn't mean that we're not saddened by what goes on. It doesn't mean that we that we don't have sometimes sleepless nights over the decisions that are made by these authorities. In fact, we can't help but be grieved. I'm sure the believers in the first century were grieved. I mean, we feel the pain, no doubt, like they did, seeing their society slipping more and more into foolishness. We look around us today and see a kind of insanity when it comes to morality. Our hearts ache for the sexual perversion that takes place 
We have a heavy burden thinking about a secular educational agenda that is in so many ways trying to force any notion of God out of the minds of hundreds of thousands, millions of children really. Materialism which is stoked and propped up by the policies of our government. Powerful people are unfairly protected while the weak are given only broken promise after broken promise. It grieves us. Innocent children slaughtered by the millions because they're looked at as an inconvenient consequence sometimes of a sinful lifestyle. Political leaders turning a deaf ear to the cries of the oppressed. They show more, more interest in protecting the executives rather than the exploited. We see all that. We grieve. We see crimes go unpunished. We see those who work hard who are penalized. There always seems to be a call for more police, more courts, more jail, more laws, more education because people can't get their arms out of the spiraling moral chaos that they're seeing unfold in front of them. No one trusts politicians. No one trusts the Congress. No one likes the president or they don't like his decisions or they don't like his advisors or they love what he does. They just can't support his moral failures and so they try to bury that. We're repulsed by the courts. We're disappointed again and again by judges. We're upset at the level of taxes. We're grieved by the way that it is spent. Or the way it's not spent for some of the roads. I probably shouldn't go there, right? We can feel, I mean, honestly at times, that we are just being carried along flowing down the sewer of society, clinging to a rope of righteousness, trying to pull ourselves out of the mess. We feel that. That's real. And Christianity, Christians are are understandably saddened by that. Some of them are hostile seeing these things. Their reflex is to want to reclaim some dignity, to fight for some corner of freedom. But we have to remember the times we live in are no worse than what Paul faced. And his answer was not a call for political reform. It wasn't a call for sit-ins, for protests, for riots. He doesn't tell people to join the movement of the zealots, to grab their weapons, to take their voices to the street. What he says in Titus is engage in good deeds. Engage in good deeds. Or really an extension of what he says back in Titus 2, to adorn the doctrine of God by the way you live your lives. Live as people who are free, Peter says, using your freedom not as a cover-up for evil. Don't mask your selfish ambitions and your pursuit of the flesh under the guise of freedom. The goal of your life is not personal freedoms. It's the proclamation of the gospel. 
That's Paul's view, that's Peter's view of citizenship, and it was founded on the fact that this government that we have is established by God, and we need to understand that when we rebel, we give a testimony to the world that that's not true. We give a testimony to the world that we are the ones who are in control of those things. Paul wouldn't want us to do that. Secondly, there's a second consequence if you rebel against governing authorities. Not only do you deny that God is the one who placed them there, but Paul says in verse 2, you defy God himself. I mean, you need to understand, as he draws out the implications here, he says very clearly in verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, the text isn't clear about where the judgment comes from, whether it's judgment from the government itself or whether it's judgment from God Himself. But at the end of the day, it's God. Whether it's God through some indirect force or whether it's God through the appointed forces that are in place. When you face the consequences of your attitude and your rebellion against the governing structures, when you face whatever the rods are and whatever the whips are, when you face all of those things from the governing authorities, you are incurring a judgment. He says we need to be careful. Paul directs this correlation between the authorities that God has appointed and God Himself because behind all government is the Lord and whoever resists, resists the authority of the government is resisting God. He is literally, the word is the opposite of, of submission. Whereas submission talks about lining yourself up under, this is a word for lining yourself up against. And so you can just sort of just get this picture of people linking arms against and standing face to face and toe to toe with government authorities. And he says, when you do that, you're not resisting the authorities, you're resisting God. Because God's will and His purpose are being carried out in creation through the governments that exist. God has given this authority, whether from the president or the policeman, to wield a kind of a sword that's been placed in their hands by God. And to resist their sword is to resist God. Now you might say, well, I mean, I don't like what they do with their sword. Well, guess what? God probably doesn't either. God's not pleased with all the ways in which they carry out their mandate, but He controls all those who are doing it. You have to understand that God's purposes go so far beyond even what you can see as He raises up kings and brings down nations doing His will. And so Paul says resistance, rebellion, Revolt, revolution, all of these are ungodly movements because they are directed not just against the governments God's put in place, they're directed against God Himself. And to show disrespect to the rulers who are in place is to show disrespect to God. Now you might be asking, well, um, am I supposed to then just do everything that every leader and every politician says I'm supposed to do even if they ask me to defy God? No, no. That's not the answer because 
you understand that the ultimate authority behind all authorities and the ultimate law behind all laws are God's laws and God himself. And so we might say there's a limit to the authority even of these delegated rulers, even of those who have been appointed by God. They can pass all kinds of laws. They can support all kinds of causes. But when they ask us to directly contradict one of God's laws, when we're forced to make a, a choice between obeying governing authorities or obeying God, what we see in Scripture is also very clear. We're commanded, as the apostles say in Acts chapter 5, we're commanded to obey God rather than obey men. But this is the whole genesis of everything Paul is saying. Is that framework not only causes us to, on occasion, have to defy those governing authorities, but it is that very same thing which causes us to yield to them. Because it is obedience to God whenever we show obedience to governing authorities. And ultimately, that is who we're obeying whatever we're doing. Now, it's easy enough to say that, I understand, but for some people, it's hard to discern when they're being asked to cross that line. When, in the payment of their taxes... In the following of certain guidelines, in the way that they do their hiring and firing of their employees, in the way that they uh, carry out and conduct their business, in the way they follow all of the uh, the, uh, ordinances in their city and in their government, when and where are they crossing that line? That's difficult to discern for them. And so we're going to take some time next week to try to define those principles When is it right to obey the government, or excuse me, disobey the government in order to obey God? We'll see that as we unfold these continuing consequences of rebellion against government. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we hear these words and we confess that they rattle us. They run contrary to so much of what we see blasted across our screens, in front of our eyes, on social media, on talk radio, on television, every day. And yet your word is unambiguous. Our calling is not our citizenship in this life and it's not our personal freedoms. Our calling is the proclamation of of your gospel. Lord, we want to know how to do that. We want to know how to be faithful to that. So I pray that you would teach us, not only today, but next week, more and more, what is our way, our pathway of honoring your name and of upholding your truth. We ask these things by your mercy and through the power of the Spirit. Amen.